Luke 14, we'll read from verse 25 through verse 33. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else... While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, let's turn our hearts and seek the Lord again. Let's pray. Our glorious King, we come this morning to lay our praises before your throne. We come on this day because of the resurrection of your Son, which demonstrated once and for all that you were satisfied, not only with his righteousness, but satisfied to accept him as the substitute, as the sacrifice, and as the justification of every sinner that comes to you through him. We turn our hearts toward you this week, hearts that are so prone to be attracted to other things. We want to bend our minds and our will toward you to hear what you have to say, to throw open the door of every chamber of our life, to remove any uh, impediment, any hurdle between us and you to be enticed by your kindness to sinners throughout the centuries. And to every believer here, we can look back and see in our own experience what a perfect and kind king and teacher we find in Christ Jesus. So we want to remove every doubt and silence, every opposition, and throw it all open to you, God You deserve everything that we are, past, present, and future. You have always deserved our complete trust, our belief. You deserve our heart's highest affections and deepest loves, not just once, but daily, without interruption, without exception. You deserve our obedience, every thought, every plan, every word, every response, all, all should be yours. But we struggle, God, you see us, you know us through and through. We thank you that you have provided a king and a priest and a prophet, 
One to rescue and rule us, to wash us from our sins, to provide a righteousness which we could not provide, to teach us things that we are so desperately ignorant of. We pray that you would open our eyes to see him again this morning, open them in such a way that we would be captivated and the tyranny of the urgent, the the constant pressure of the next thing on our calendar would just melt away before him. We want to join our voices, not just in songs that we sing, but in prayers. We want to join our hearts. We want to join our choices and our put our feet on the path with every believer who has gone before us. Show us who you are and then show the world who you are through our transformed lives. We want to give you everything. We want to love you with all our soul and mind, all our hearts, all our strength. But God, how divided we find ourselves to be so easily. So come and stoop down and turn your face toward your children. Not because we are more spiritual than other people, but because you have shown us something of the bottomless pit of our need and you have shown us your son so we come and God we want to lay hold of him with both hands and we want Lord you to be pleased with the worship that we offer you we pray that this would occur across the world as Chuck prayed in our prayer meeting that whether it's the churches down the street in our town or in a country that we don't know their language, names that we've never heard, of people who gather in hope and faith. But you know their names and have known them from eternity. So God, prosper your kingdom. Conquer with your astonishing love. Humble, proud man. Exalt Jesus of Nazareth. And may his will as we found it, find it spelled out in Scripture, God, may that be our great delight to do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come today again to the theme of discipleship. <clears throat> but I, I want to start with a, a couple of illustrations. Now, the first one is um, a queen from about 2,800 years ago. She is a queen in Jerusalem. She is one of the queens of the king of the Jews at that time. And she records, or he records, in his book of love poetry, that one evening in particular, she was pretty cold-hearted toward him. No matter what he did or said, she is uninterested in him. And She later, as she lays in bed, she tosses around and thinks of of that coldness and how he doesn't deserve it. She can't get back to sleep, so she decides that she'll get up and go find him. But she looks throughout the palace and she can't find him, so she gets dressed and goes out into the night. In Jerusalem, she wanders the streets of the capital city, dressed as she is. The policemen of the day, the guards, don't recognize her. They're harsh with her. What are you doing out at this time of night? Why are you walking around? Who are you? 
Who are you looking for? Well, instead of saying that she's the queen and she's looking for the king, she says that she's looking for her love. And they say, well, what kind of love is your love that you would just wander the streets at night by yourself? He must be something special. And I suppose she could have said, well, he's King Solomon. But there are a lot of kings on planet Earth, especially in that day. And for her, there was no one like Solomon. So she begins to describe him. She says, he is chief among 10,000. And then she goes through this beautiful poetic description of how he is perfect in her eyes. And she ends the description by saying, he is altogether lovely, which is quite a big statement. It's too big for Solomon. It's a wonderful picture, though, of what the believer can see in Christ. Chief among 10,000? Yes, more than that, altogether lovely. Not one flaw have we ever seen in him. In the 1800s in Scotland, so much closer to home, there was a pastor and an educator and a mathematician and a philosopher, giant brain, named Thomas Chalmers. If you go to Edinburgh, Scotland, you'll see a statue to Chalmers right there at the heart of the city. Now, not only was he this giant intellect, but he was also a preacher in the Church of Scotland, really the kind of leading star of the Church of Scotland at that time, which is not good news because the Church of Scotland at this time has become very liberal. Within that church, there's a small group of believers, pastors, who are becoming more and more uh, bothered by the, the decay in the denomination and how the denomination just keeps moving further and further away from the Bible. And eventually they will separate. That little group included people that you might have heard of, Andrew Bernard, Horatius Bernard, we sing some of his hymns, and Robert Murray McShane. William Chalmers Burns also was one. He was named after the man I want to tell you about. But Thomas Chalmers, at this time, is a, a leader in the denomination. He is an elitist. He is a self-serving um, hireling in the church. He does not believe that the scripture is infallible. He publicly mocks the idea that the cross of Christ had anything to do with removing the stain of our sin. It was not an atoning death, he said. That was a barbaric concept that uneducated people embraced. In spite of being a teacher of the Bible on Sundays, he said that the Bible never explains how the cross affects our guilt between us and God. Instead, he said the only way for a person to be acceptable by God was to be a good person. Why was he a preacher if he doesn't really believe the heart of the Bible? Well, one of his friends asked him what he did all week long. And he said, well, two days a week, I am a pastor. Now he got a full-time pay. But he was so intellectual, he said, I can do all my work in two days. And then I get five days to do what I want to do. One friend speaking to him said to him during this time, I see you always reading books, but never your Bible. I never see you study for a Sunday sermon. And Thomas Chalmers' reply was this. Oh, no, you wouldn't because I can do that in two hours and be ready. Now, 
He goes on like this for a long time. He is admired by all the liberals. His uncle becomes sick and dies, tuberculosis. Chalmers himself can't make it to the funeral until much later he goes and he visits the family of his uncle long after the funeral. He pays his respects. On the way home, it's bad weather and he catches a really bad cold and pneumonia. He is sick for two years. He is bedridden for four months, so it's not a normal cold. While, this, while he is sick and bedridden and thinking that he has tuberculosis, probably, which was rampant at the time, his sister dies of tuberculosis. His brother dies of tuberculosis. So he's sure that he's about to die. And as he lays there, he said, four months being stuck in bed, he had nothing to do but think. And he was shocked by the awareness that he had no peace with God, even though he was a pastor. And that he was terrified at the thought of eternity and hell and his sins and all of his liberal views of God just accepting everyone melted away when he was face to face with death. He began to read a little book given to him by a friend by William Wilberforce. You might recognize that name. William Wilberforce was an Englishman who was also a member of parliament, a governmental official. And Wilberforce was converted under the ministry of John Newton, famous hymnist and pastor. And through Newton's influence and God's work in Wilberforce, Wilberforce used his position in government for great good. And you probably remember him as the man who led the charge, along with other believers, to make uh, slavery illegal throughout the British Empire. Wilberforce also wrote a few books. His best known is a book called The Practical View of Christianity. Now, in this little book, and I have this little beautiful leather copy, and I cannot find it. I, I don't know where it is. I might have given it away. I do that sometimes, and then I can't find it. Most of the time, I just put it somewhere, and I, I don't know where I put it. But I will find this book. And in this little book, Wilberforce gives really um, quite a scathing examination of British Christianity in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He shows that just because you go to church doesn't mean you really love Christ. And he explains, well, what does a real Christian life look like? And while Chalmers was reading this in the 1820s-ish, he is led to Christ. After he's converted and his health improves, he goes back to his church, back to the political meetings of the Church of Scotland. And one day he gets up from the, from the liberal side of the big conference. And he gets up and walks over in front of everybody and sits by this little group of despised conservatives. And from that point forward, he becomes really the spiritual guide and father of the conservative part of the Church of Scotland. And he becomes the mentor of men like McShane and, and Andrew Bernard and others who, under his guidance, uh, they build new churches. There's a great evangelistic move throughout the cities of Scotland, and there are waves of revival. Now, the reason I mention him and Solomon's wife is because they both have something in common. They are captivated 
by a person. They are in love with the person and the loveliness of that person changes everything about their behavior. When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about that lifelong authoritative relationship, really more of an apprenticeship than just a a pupil in a classroom, where Christ is our teacher and our boss, and he doesn't just teach us facts, but he teaches us how to apply those in real life, and he fashions our character by being with us. And when we read the biblical descriptions of discipleship, you know, there are, one or, there are a couple of options. One option that we talked about in the last weeks is to read those passages and think, well, those are wonderful passages, but, you know, God doesn't really mean that that's the only way to follow Christ. There are other ways, and you can accept the cultural approach to Christianity as the norm. And then Jesus' words in the Bible kind of become the super-Christian. Or you can listen to what Christ says and take it seriously and be tempted to be overwhelmed because you don't know how you, not other people, you, you. If we had time, I just would start listing you off. You, me. Not how can a person really be discipled by Jesus in 2023, but how could you be discipled by Jesus this morning? This afternoon, tomorrow morning when you go to work or the kids wake up before you do and start, you know, running circles around you. And we get overwhelmed at the thought of really following Christ. And I told you that there are a couple of really helpful answers to that objection, to that fear. One is what we looked at last week. Consider, just back up and consider all that God does to make a disciple. It's amazing. The second Consider Christ the discipler. And third, take an honest look at the biblical path. I think you will find that for the true Christian, the path of obedience, the path of a disciple, is not just reasonable. It's not just good. It's not just moral. It is practical. But let's start with thinking about Jesus. It is so difficult when you think about these things. It's difficult not to begin to think about the practicality of following Jesus Christ, really following Jesus Christ. Today, you, fully following Jesus Christ. It's hard not to begin to measure the practicality of that by looking in the mirror. And so you look in the mirror and you see you. And you think, well, could that person in the mirror be a follower of Jesus Christ? The way the Bible talks. Could that person in the mirror count the cost that Christ mentioned? Chuck read the passage this morning where Christ told people to do that. Only a fool says, I'll follow Jesus, and you haven't considered the cost. You haven't considered who it is you're following. Much of our evangelism in the last 50 years has been lacking at this point. Uh, Mr. Roberts compared it to a salesman rather than to one who is an ambassador. We give people the minimal amount of facts about Jesus and then give them the the sizzle, the sales pitch. Don't you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be on God's team or the devil's team? And and so the person says, well, I, I want to be on God's team. And with very little knowledge of why they need Christ and how he is sufficient in every way to rescue them from every aspect of sin, they pray the prayer. Of course, most often, 
nothing happens. Um, nothing changes. If you're going to take Christianity seriously, and I don't just mean those of you who have stepped back and you keep saying to God, not yet. I, I'm not ready to make up my mind yet. I, I mean, for the Christian, if I'm going to wake up today and take the claims of Christ seriously today and take the commands of Christ seriously and see my life primarily, not just as a convert, but as a disciple of Christ, then I have got to look somewhere other than the mirror. You are not really good material for discipleship. But the good news is that nobody that Christ has discipled has been good material for discipleship. Every one of them were born his enemy. Every one of them has stumbled along the path, have struggled to understand what he says, have had to have their teacher repeat the lesson ad nauseum. You come to the discipler who is the perfect discipler. Bad, poor, stupid pupils are no problem for a perfect teacher. So instead of looking in the mirror and saying, I'm not sure that I could really follow Christ, or I'm not sure I can continue to follow Christ, or I'm not sure that I can do what I fear that he is pointing me to do, the only way I know to put that to death daily for the Christian, or to put it to death initially as you embrace him in repentance and faith for the first time, is to take a long look at him. What kind of person calls me to follow? And is he enough? That's really our question this morning. Is he enough? Now, I have been reading a book, and I have a new friend. I've mentioned his name before, Cornelius Tyree. Never heard of him before a few months ago. But I saw a book that was being published, a different book, under that name, and it looked like a great title. So I looked up the name, I googled him, and he is a Baptist pastor from the 1800s in Virginia. Uh, he is a careful Baptist pastor. And Cornelius Tyree has written a few books. And one of them is called The Glorious Sufficiency of Christ. And I bought a number of copies. I bought one copy first. And then I started to read it. And then I felt so hoped, helped. I, I bought some others. And some of you I've given the copy to. Cornelius Tyree gives 13 little chapters, some of them are just a few pages, on how Christ is more than sufficient, gloriously sufficient for everything that the disciple needs. Now, I'm not going to re-preach Cornelius Tyree's little book, but I want to steal his chapter titles and his themes because he just lays them out so carefully, so helpfully. And there are a couple of quotes and illustrations I'll steal from him as well, but I'll try to remember to tell you if it's Cornelius or whether it's not, all right? When we think about the sufficiency of Christ so that even you could be a disciple, a real disciple, throughout the rest of your life, I want us to just probably to take a month and look at a few of Christ's perfections at a time. Now, let me mention one thing. Tyree said right at the front. When he was talking about glory, because it's a word we use in church a lot, he described it this way. He said, glory in this situation, glory is excellence. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the excellencies or the perfections of God. And when we talk about the glory of Christ, we're talking about the excellence of Christ. But when we talk about Christ, we have something unique. He possesses as the eternal son of God. 
united to our humanity. He possesses simultaneously, eternally, co-equally, all the fullness of deity. He's not one-third God. He is fully God, as is the Father and the Spirit. And that is a mystery to us, but that's what the Scripture presents. One God, yet three persons. So when we think of the Savior, He possesses the excellencies of God. He also possesses the excellencies of a perfect man. We have not met a perfect human. He is the proper man. Uh, it's one way that we, uh, that we translate Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. There's a different translation of that in our hymnal. And yesterday morning at the men's prayer meeting, we were looking at a 360 in our hymnal where it talks about Christ. It calls him the proper man. What's that mean? He is the ideal man. He is the man's man. The perfection of mankind is in him. And so there's, a, there's an excellence there. But in Christ, we find the combination of God and man. And he is excellent as our mediator. Tyree says, whether you look at one aspect or not, this threefold glory of Christ demonstrates that he is sufficient in every possible way for you to follow. Well, one of the things that he mentions, and it's a category that we talk about frequently, but it's not a category that he came up with, it's a category that Paul came up with. And that is Christ is sufficient to make you his disciple because Paul says he has been, by the Father, made or become your wisdom. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. After, in that chapter, Paul's explaining that though the gospel is a thing that the Jews are offended by because it demonstrates that they're not good enough. And the Greeks are offended by because they think they're too intelligent for it. Paul says, for the believer, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says this in verse 30. But by his, by the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When we read that verse, I suppose that wisdom is the word that you think is the smallest. If you were to handwrite the verse and I were to ask you to give in your mind, what is most significant? Kind of rank those phrases or those words in that verse. Christ is made to you. And he lists four things. Which one would you write smaller than the others? Which one bigger? Look at it again. Colossians, oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Let me read it to you again. He became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. Perhaps we don't understand how beautiful the word is there, this little word wisdom, because we think that we're, we've got it together. We know that by nature, we're sinners. We know that our hearts tend to kind of drift and gravitate toward things that are all about us. We know that in our choices, the way we respond to people next to us, with the, the way we act in our home, uh, the way we go about religion, even the way we act toward God, that we tend to do it with us as the center. So we would say, yeah, my heart, I need help. 
my will, my choices, I need help. But what about the intellect? During the Great Awakening in England, so they call it the Evangelical Revival, one of the things that the Anglican Church was so offended by when George Whitfield and John Wesley and others preached was when they talked about the absolute necessity of God to enter in and save you, that you couldn't rescue yourself by coming to church and cleaning up and you know, becoming a better person. And part of the reason that there was a disagreement between, for example, what George Whitfield was preaching, which I believe was biblical, and what the Anglican Church had drifted into teaching, which I feel is not biblical, one of the reasons there was this disagreement was because the Anglican theologians had begun to say this, the heart is sinful, the will of man is sinful, but the mind is untouched. And you can reason your way through the scriptures and come to the rescue on your own. Is it true? Calvin and others long before that said, no, the heart is sinful, the will is sinful, the mind is sinful. The way Paul describes it in Romans 3 is, no one understands God. He also says no one really seeks for God, not the true God, and no one obeys God. So mind, heart, and will, all of them polluted by sin. All of them impacted, twisted, and bent. The mind is not free from sin. You and I, we, we are intelligent in many ways. Humanity has learned so much. If you think about the advances in science, and in technology, just in your lifetime, it's astonishing. But with the real questions, the big questions that don't change, questions like, who are you? I mean, who really are you? And why are you? And where did you come from? You didn't make yourself. You say, well, my parents, well, they didn't make themselves. Their parents, well, you just keep tracing it back. We're going to have to find someone other than the people we're related to, where did we come from? Why are we here? If there's a creator, what is he like? Is he a he? Is it just a, a, you know, a blob of energy? If it is a he, if we are personal spiritual beings because we've been created by a personal spiritual being, if that explains the difference between us and dogs and horses and pigs, what does he want from you? And if you have not done what he wants, how will you make it right? Those are the big questions. You can't find them in a laboratory or in a telescope or in the newest thing that a computer is able to design. You can't even find it in the old philosophies. You can't find it in the new philosophies. You can't find it in religion. You can't find it in your Bible. Not without Christ. Without Christ, your Bible to you is like the Old Testament Bible was to the Jew who, while rejecting Jesus, quoted verses about Jesus. They talked all about the Messiah, and then they crucified the Messiah while they talked about the Messiah. You can do that today. You can talk all about Jesus Christ. You can quote John Owen on the glory of Christ or on communion with God through Christ. You can appreciate those things intellectually. You can even be moved emotionally and you can change your life a little on the outside. And so the, the volition, the choices we make, they can be altered by religion, but without Christ, you are so blind that 
when you read the greatest thinkers of the world or the modern religionists, you have to come away with this conclusion. At best, apart from Christ, humanity, we are all stumbling in the dark. We all live in shadows. We don't understand What's my problem? How is Christ the cure? How do I come to him? What, what could he do for me? So you understand that when Paul says to the Corinthians, I know the world mocks the gospel, but let me tell you, you that know him, you know God has made him your wisdom. What he's saying is this. Christ has not just brought the truth to you. He's not just a lot of the truth. He's not just religious truth. Truth has been packed into 66 books and it's been printed in a Bible for us. But there is a limit to what you can put in 66 books and there is no limit to Christ. He is the infinite truth incarnate. Paul says in Colossians 2, God the Father has caused all the wisdom to dwell in his Son. He is the source not only of all knowledge, but of, of the Perfection and the skill to apply all the knowledge. It's all in him. John says, years after the ascension of Christ, as the last gospel writer, having watched so many people die, John says, he is the light of the world who comes to enlighten us. But Christ isn't just the spiritual sunshine. He also heals your eyes. So one day you read the Bible again. Or you hear the sermon again and you expect it to have the same impact it had the last time. That is, you want to be polite and you want to endure it and it'll be over not too long. And then Christ becomes your wisdom. And suddenly you see it and it changes everything. Tyree does say about Christ being our, the truth and our wisdom. He says, it's not like he's a star in the dark night. So you walk out at night and let's imagine that there is only one star visible. So the, the complete night, the moon is black, no other star shining. Of all the blackness of the sky, of the galaxies, there is one brilliant star. And being the only real light out there, it's so beautiful. But he says, that's not the way Christ is your wisdom, where you see him at a distance and you admire him and you say, Christ was, is so great, but he's there. Christ, he says, is like the sunrise that fills your house with light so that every aspect, everything is touched now. Everything is illuminated. Now I know what God wants in marriage. Now I know what, what God wants from me as a son or a daughter, as a brother or sister, as an uncle or aunt, a grandparent, as a worker, as a worshiper. Every area of life now, the sunshine of Christ has risen. My eyes are open and I see. Christ is wisdom. And he answers every question that matters. And he is such a perfect teacher that you can be a pretty stupid pupil, but that doesn't matter. He can teach you. Let me give you a second aspect of Christ that is so excellent that it proves he is enough to be your discipler. The, the cleansing righteousness of Christ. And there really are two parts to that. And if you've been going to the book study on John Owen, 
or reading along on your own, you know what we're talking about. There is the fact that Christ was described as the Lamb of God. He is the one that is sacrificed. And by his death, something is accomplished that was not ever accomplished by the bloody sacrifice of any Jewish animal for centuries prior to that. All of them were symbols. They were expressions of faith. The Jew came. I trust God one day to provide a sacrifice. This goat, this, this sheep, this ox, it, it will never take away my sin. And that's why I'll have to be back again next week. But the writer of Hebrews says that one sacrifice in the person of God's son, once and for all, removes the sin. John on the Isle of Patmos says that Christ has forgiven and freed us from our sin. It's not just that he's forgiven yesterday's sins. It's that the chain between you and the shame is cut. And how can that possibly be when you think of your sin? Not sin in the abstract. Not the person's sin around you. Not the way people have sinned against you. But how you have sinned. Take all of your sins. Take the worst of your sins. Bring them to Christ. How can you imagine that the one you have sinned against is qualified to be your discipler? And the answer is the payment was infinite. Every single sin of every believer from the beginning to the end of human time has been laid upon Jesus of Nazareth. And the Father, without in any way bending the rules, has given the Son everything we deserved on the cross. And the God-man feels the flood, the infinite flow of the wrath. And he dies his humanity under that and then is raised. When we look at the payment of Christ and realize it was of infinite worth, that's why there is no reason to fear that Christ won't be enough to disciple you. I'm not talking about forgiving your sins the very first time you come and you say, it's true, I've lived for myself. It's true, I, I can't make this right. And now I believe what you say in your word and I come and I come for rest, and I come for cleanness. I give myself to you, and you're forgiven. Sins forgiven. But what about 20 years later? I have been a believer longer than I have been an unbeliever. 33 years I've been a believer, but this morning I required Christ to wash my feet again. In other words, I required my discipler to apply afresh to my conscience his cleansing payment. And you will too. It's one thing to say, Christ can forgive me for my sins. It's another thing to say that day after day, hour by hour, month by month, as a believer who is not living just as a created being or one that owes the creator obedience, but one who has been brought into the family of God, who's been made alive by God, who's been loved from eternity by God, never, never a moment where he did not have his affection set upon you to bring you out of death into light, and you knowing the scripture and what it tells you about the pollution and destruction of sin, you believe sin and call God a liar just long enough to choose the sin. And it may not be an open choice for you this week. It may have just been that out of carelessness, 
You didn't even know you were living for self or, you know, you just fall into that rut. Or even, even if you've tried to obey, you find yourself falling short. If your discipler cannot wash you daily, then you should not volunteer for discipleship. But it's not just washing us. It's he provides a perfect righteousness. It's not just that the, the filth is taken away from God's sight. It's that all that the law expected you to do is attributed to you because you are united to the one that obeyed everything. He, in a sense, stretches out his righteousness like a robe and covers you with it. That's why there can be no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ and who demonstrates that, of course, by walking with Christ. Read Romans 8, the first, three, first few verses there. So we who have embraced Christ and we are being led by Christ, he is our king, he's our discipler. When we see that our best efforts fall short, our motives were impure, we didn't do it loving him with all our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. No, we would say, I don't think I could say that. You come to him again and again. And in the God-man, you see a perfect righteousness. Your prayers have not been perfect this morning. Your singing has not been perfect this morning. My preaching is not perfect this morning. Our efforts are not perfect this morning. Our intentions are not perfect this morning. Our resolutions are imperfect. And our carrying out our resolutions will be in some measure imperfect. So if I'm going to follow Christ, I need to know that that discipler can provide a perfect righteousness. His prayers were perfect. His songs to the Father were perfect as a man when he worshipped. His worship was perfect. His resolution to love and obey the Father was perfect. His carrying out of his resolutions was perfect. His motives were perfect. It was all his heart, all his mind, all his strength, all of his being as a human that was engaged in all of God's will. And I look to him by faith and see the only hope for me being right with God is not just the washing of the cross, the forgiving and pardoning, but the provision of a perfect rightness, a perfect obedience. When we think of being discipled by Jesus and he says things like, you're going to have to be willing to love me more than you love your family. You're, you're going to have to be willing to lose them. You're going to have to to lose your own life to follow me. And you think, I just don't know if I can do that. I, I know that I will not do it perfectly. Then just go and ask people that have already done that. I mean, ask Paul and from prison. Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I count everything as loss. I still count it all as loss. I, today, I, I think of everything else as kind of as garbage compared to Christ so that I can have a righteousness, not by me keeping little rules, but by his righteousness received through faith. And that's why Paul obeyed. Or think of John writing to the, in his first letter to the believers there. 
He tells them that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if you live in darkness, you can't have a friendship with a God that lives in light. Imagine two different places. One place that is full of blinding light. Another place that is pitch black. We're talking morally. People that live in the darkness like it that way because if you go into the light, then everything is seen. And so any Christian that stumbles would surely doubt that God would still want us to follow him would still call us his child and John explains we can come into the light with the filthiest most embarrassing most shameful selfish choices as a Christian and our hearts are genuinely broken now it's not okay with us that we sin but when we do see sin we come and we agree with God about it but we also agree with God about Christ and he forgives us out of justice and mercy Not just of what we've confessed, but of every spot and stain. If there ever was a king like that commanding you to follow him, I think that none of us would have a right to say, I don't know if he'll be enough. Let me give you the last thing for this morning, and we'll look at more next week, God willing. Christ is the wisdom that opens our eyes and shines the light on what's real, and we run to him Christ is the one that washes us and provides righteousness. But can Christ satisfy this apparently unending, bottomless pit of yearning that we all have? Can Christ capture your affections, your heart, your desires, and hold them for the rest of your life? Perhaps you look at Christ and you say, I I admire Christ. He... I agree with what's said every Sunday. I agree with what the Bible says. But when I think of myself, I look in the mirror and I know what I'm like. I can be hot today and cold tomorrow. I can be devout today and wretchedly sinful tomorrow. I can, I can be sinful before I make it to the house after the sermon. And I, I promise God I would never, ever again live for myself. And by the time I'm home, I've already done it. So I despair. I don't think a person like me could really follow Christ. So either you're left with that kind of religion that just fits the culture or you, you just plop down where you're at in despair. You're paralyzed. How many times have we thought, I want to follow Christ fully, but I'm afraid that if I say that, within no time at all, I will be distracted again. Well, you might be. But the only way to be healed of that is to find a discipler that is so attractive so captivating that even though you are distracted at times, you will never be able to let him go. Christ's love and his loveliness are so excellent, Tyree says, it's sufficient. If you think about your life, There are hungers or yearnings or cravings. There are thirsts. There are desires that seem insatiable. You just can't get enough. And it's easy to spend your entire life doing what comes naturally to us. And that is that we think the next thing will satisfy. Or the next event. Or the next relationship. It doesn't matter what you put in there. It's different for everybody. It looks different, but it's really the same thing. There must be something that's in this creation that God made 
that will satisfy a hunger that God has given humanity. And there isn't. But then there's God come to you in the person of Christ. And when he calls you to follow him and to love him above all others and never depart from him. And you're afraid perhaps that you will not stick it. Don't look at yourself. Look at him. There is only one person that is so beautiful that no matter how long you know him, you will not grow accustomed. When we're young, we see people that are physically beautiful, you know. And uh, as I get older, I see people on, like in the movies, you know, that you see these old black and white movies where, you know, Liz Taylor, she's, she's 16. And you think, she's so pretty. Then I, Liz Taylor, I grew up looking at, she's not so pretty. It happens to all of us. I'm 53 now. I'm, I find great comfort in just accepting that all those, you know, handsome men in Hollywood, they'll all be as ugly as me, you know, so that's fine. We're all getting ugly together. You look at Christ, never a change. You get to know people morally. You find a new friend, a new relationship. It, it's so exciting in the early days. You know, to get to know people, to become part of their life. But then there will always come with every person you meet that time where you realize how imperfect they are. And then the choice is on you. Will you love them in spite of them? That will never happen with Christ. If you see a Christian grow cold toward Christ, and that can happen for a time, it is not because Christ isn't all that he said he is. It's not because he isn't sufficiently attractive. It is because the Christian has quit looking at him and in looking other ways, they have forgotten for a while how attractive he is. And then God gets our attention. Our faces turn back toward him. It's not just words on a page. It's that we see him as ours and we are his and we are conquered all over again. In the 18th century, um, John Locke, a philosopher, and other philosophers with him. And I am not an expert in philosophy. I took a course that I had to take on philosophy uh, in the master's degree. And I don't remember anything about it except the early Greeks totally... I didn't know why they were saying the things they were saying. I thought they were crazy. But there was a philosopher that I'm a little more acquainted with because of his impact on men like Jonathan Edwards. Locke and some other men around that time... In their philosophy, one of the things that they, they added to humanity's thought was this. Moral purity, things that are right. This is the right thing. They're not just straight. They're not just perfect. They're not just clean and pure and righteous and just. They are beautiful. And so... You find that in the preaching of the great awakening ministers. Christ is not just clean and right and straight and perfect and just without flaw. He is beautiful. And the Christian life is not just the right path. It is the most beautiful path. And I think, as far as that goes, they were right. There is something beautiful about what is clean and true and real and good. And when it comes to Christ... There is infinite goodness. And so I think we would have to agree. If you know him, there is infinite, immeasurable, unlimited, indescribable, incomparable attractiveness. 
That's important since when Christ tells you to follow him, you're going to have to lose everything or at least lose the right to everything. And you say, well, what do I get in return? Count the cost. Use a calculator. Be greedy. Don't be stupid. Don't, don't give up a lot for something that's not much. God doesn't ever reward that kind of foolishness. So count the cost, but don't fudge the numbers. Calculate what you give up, what it really is, and then calculate Christ. And if you're an honest, wise, greedy businessman or businesswoman, you will choose Christ. But we don't because we keep adjusting the numbers and we say it can't. It can't be that. And so we kind of fudge the numbers. We move the decimal point and we say, I don't think Jesus is that good. Do you remember the parable of the jeweler? A man who sold pearls. That was his profession. We call him a jeweler. And he's traveling the world to find the best. And so as he's gathering, you know, the inventory for the coming year, he comes across a pearl unlike any pearl he has ever seen in his entire life. And he says, I want that pearl, but it costs a lot. So he goes home and he sells everything he has. His house, his store, you know, all the jewels that he has there. And he goes back and he buys this pearl. And he is not plagued with buyer's remorse. He doesn't think, what did I do? My house. All I got was a pearl. My inventory. I had a thousand things. Now I have one thing. What? His wife doesn't turn to him and say, are you stupid? Because he knows the value of jewels. And this one pearl is worth so much more than everything he owns that only an idiot wouldn't do it. So he's thrilled. Or the other parable of a man that's digging in a field. And while he's digging in a field, he hits something, he digs it up. It's treasure. Its value is so much that he goes home and sells everything he owns to buy this piece of property. Now, while you're watching him from a distance, you might think he's a fool. Why would you sell everything for a small piece of farmland? But once he pulls that out and gets it appraised and puts it in the bank, nobody thinks he's a fool anymore. You sold something that was worth a little for something that can't be counted. Christian, if you could see the beauty of Christ... And how attractive he is. And how perfectly designed he is to capture your heart. You would not for a moment delay to sell it all for him. And be glad to be the first one to be able to run up and say, I sold everything. Can I buy it? When Charles uh, Cornelius Tyree talks about this in his book, he just climbs Mount Everest. And it's my favorite part in the book. He just, I won't give you all that he says, but he, he, he compares Christ's beauty to creation. He says, Christ is, the Son of God is the one that the Father entrusted with creation. And we look at creation and there are some amazing things. There are sunsets and sunrises. There are mountains and streams, you know, there are valleys, you know, you know there are different parts of the world that have different types of beauty. Even the desert has beauty. And you see these pictures, these National Geographic quality pictures of places in the world you've never been. And that's just planet Earth. And then you think of the galaxy and the pictures of the spiral galaxies uh, you know, and, and the Hubble telescope pictures. And it's just breathtaking. You could just sit and look all day. And he, Tyree asked this question. Do you think the creator contributed more beauty to the creation than he himself possesses? How could he? 
He is infinitely more beautiful than what he has given beauty to. He's the source of it. Then he compares Christ to humanity. He says, imagine the, the pinnacle of humanity in different ways. Because usually when we think of people that really aren't, you know, stand out. We admire them for patience. But usually the patient person is not also admired for their justice. Or the loving and tender person is not always admired for their bold courage. So he, think, he says, just imagine a person in every category of human virtue and imagine the greatest and then you combine them all into one and you have not even scratched the surface of the beauty of the God-man. And then he says, if you want to see Christ's beauty, you can't go to heaven and see him face to face yet, but you can look at the Gospels and see him in contrast to the ugliness of humanity around him. His calmness and their raging anger, their deceptive use of religion and his pure honesty, his love, their hate, his purity, their pollution. He just goes on and on and look at the infinite worth of Christ. Christian, if someone comes to you and says, follow me and it's going to cost you what you think is absolutely essential for happiness. Trust me, hand it over to me. You would be foolish to do it unless he was worth it. Is he enough? Well, I want us to just kind of bring it down to a couple of conclusions. If you delay embracing Christ for the first time or really following Christ right now as a Christian, you've stalled because the cost has become pretty high and you think, I don't know that he's worth this. If you are a delayer, do not lie to yourself and say, well, the only reason I'm delaying is because of what's in front of me. It's the circumstance or what's in the mirror. I'm just not sure that I could really say yes to this. I don't want to say yes and then tomorrow wake up and say no. The real issue is that you have looked at Christ and you have measured him and your conclusion, your calculator bent by your unbelief and selfishness says this, not enough. Not for this. And you will find a thousand people on the internet, and you might find a hundred people in this church that say to you, You know, I understand. I've been there. It's okay. But when you see him as he is, on that great day, how will our small measure look then? Will he be impressed? You might find that he will ask for another reason, for a lifetime of delay. Delay and unbelief and doubt and cowardice, whether you're looking at, at the gate of conversion, will I hand it all over, or whether you're looking at the next act of obedience as a Christian, they are not small matters. They are not things that you could say, well, I know, I... I wish I could do better. I just can't seem to do better. They are all rooted in your devaluing of the discipler. Sometimes a Christian 
goes along at such a slow pace. And we have a lot of answers. And really the reason is because we have not got the right measure of Christ. When we come to him, here is one with infinite knowledge and wisdom. Can he not instruct you? You can say to him, I don't know what to do next. I have a Bible in front of me. I've searched the pages. I'm still confused. He can teach. When you come to him and you say, I have sinned against you and my best efforts have fallen short of what you deserve, he can cleanse you. When you come to him and say, my heart feels pulled in a thousand directions right now, look at him. He can unite that heart again. Is Christ enough for momentary conversion? Something that happened 10 years ago. Well, it doesn't take Jesus to have that. Is Christ enough for the life of discipleship? Yes. And we've just looked at three little examples of that. When the woman, uh, when the queen that I mentioned at the first of the time together, uh, runs around the streets and the, and the police catch her and say, hey, it's curfew, why are you out here? What are you doing? And they're harsh with her. Her only explanation for her weird behavior is if you knew how attractive my husband was, you wouldn't blame me. He is altogether lovely. He's worth it. When the Christian doesn't live like the person sitting next to him at work, sitting next to him at lunch, sitting next to him at church, or lying next to him in bed at night. And the difference between the Christian life being discipled by Jesus and just a religious person or a nice person, when those things are felt, and people ask you, what in the world are you doing? Why? What's your answer? I belong to one who is chief among 10,000. He's altogether lovely. His excellencies are more than sufficient. And if they knew him like you knew him, they would realize you made a good bargain. You were wise. So may the Lord help all of us. John writes in the Revelation from his exile. He says to the churches, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us. And released us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to his God and father. To him. Be the glory and the dominion. Forever and ever. Amen.